back to the What You Want More podcast. Today, I am joined by one of my standing co-hosts, Alex Stewart with The Market Distillery. Thanks for joining us today. Love it. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's episode 34. So we're really excited about this one as we kind of kick off about what's the Fed doing right now? What's next for the Federal Reserve? And you know, one of the things we continue to talk about is their policy. But more importantly, we want to break down barriers of what the news is reporting the day after the Fed meets. So this is actually Thursday, the the day after the Federal Open Market Committee has met. And uh, we got a quarter basis point rate hike on the suggested Fed funds rate. And what I find interesting about that is it doesn't take long before the headlines pick up about the doom and gloom of raising the interest rate, the negativity around it, and more importantly, the impacts that the news wants you to believe that's going to have to mortgage interest rates, stock market, investors, etc. And quite frankly, what happens with this stuff is that a news reporter is assigned a task, or maybe they're just a writer for a company with an agenda. But what I'm getting at is that there's an agenda and a lack of knowledge base involved usually on one of those two options that I just described. And what we're going to do today is break down some of those barriers as well as tie in some other things we see on the horizon that we think are going to be worthwhile talking about that will soon, you know, show up in the limelight of these news sources as well. So again, Alex, thanks for being here today. Glad to have you. And why don't we just kick it off by just breaking something down for the audience. It's just a simple metric that we talk about all the time, but I think it's important we reinforce it. The Fed funds rate, the suggested Fed's funds rate. Yep. I love this because this is where the news, if you get anything from this podcast in episode 30, this is the highlight right here. This is where the news drops the ball. Let's talk real quick about that. This Fed funds rate, this has nothing to do with 30-year fixed rate mortgages. It has nothing to do with long-term interest rates at all because it's a short-term interest rate. Correct. It's the rate in which we borrow money from the other banks. We being banks borrow from other banks. And so if you're a lending institution, you can go to the Federal Reserve and you can borrow money to offset any depository shortages to asset shortages. And they will put that money in there. Or you could go to another bank inside that region and do the same thing. And then there's a suggested interest rate that's charged to you known as the suggested federal funds rate. Alex, how long is that rate for? You want to break down our audience, like how long banks borrow this money for? Yeah, that's an overnight rate. So it's only going to be 24 hours at the most. (laughs) And, you know, what's interesting is I've actually got a, a, a buddy who does a lot of research with this sort of field. And he even brought up the fact that this rate may be less impactful now because we have such a small number of banks Mm -hmm. than was when this was originally introduced where there were 1,800 local banks all over the place and they really needed guidance as to what they should be lending at. So, you know, it, it, it brings into question truly how valuable this is. But ultimately what I would say is this is the Fed signaling probably more than anything. This is the Fed saying this is what we see this is what we want to go, the direction we want to head, and it it can have a trickle down effect through various components mm-hmm. of the of the economy. But in general, what the market's consumed with is are the Fed are they going to tighten or are they going to loosen? Mm-hmm. And you know, tightening meaning raising rates yep. on their side so that ultimately that's going to impact short term loans like we talked about. So credit cards, home equity lines of Auto credit, loans. right? All anything very short, less than right. five years. Right, things that might be based more on that benchmark rate right. of what the Fed has. Yeah. Uh, so when you raise interest rates, you're tightening the money supply. That's why we hear this term quantitative tightening because they're actually tightening the money supply by making it harder to borrow, not like physically harder to borrow, but harder to digest as an investor because it's costing yeah, it more costs money. More. That's yeah, what the so harder you're less likely to take yeah. that action. Yeah. And that, that takes money out of the economy. A lot of people don't realize this. I think they still would believe that if you go get a mortgage from a bank, mm-hmm. that bank has those dollars in the bank and they're lending them to you to go buy this That's house correct. and then the gone, they're gone, right? We know that because of, quote, flat, fractional reserve banking, 
they don't have to have that money. They just have to have a portion of that portion. money. Yep. And it's all new money that goes out. So really the Fed is saying, look, if we make things more expensive, uh, if the rates are higher, so therefore your monthly payment on that house or that car is higher and you're going to choose not to buy it, you may borrow less. And that's going to put less money into the economy. And go. it's going to slow things down a little bit. Essentially um, tightening it. Yeah, and vice versa, right? When they want to stimulate the economy, they they lower rates or they put money into the economy and they encourage people to borrow. Right. And that just – that creates and and you know Ray Dalio says it the best he says you know one man's debt is another man's income mm-hmm. and that's something that gets missed a lot is if if loans don't happen that's income for the people that do the loans that is going that's away being lost. that is then not going to be out yeah. in there so so really our whole system is based on people borrowing money and spending it and, yeah. and I, that's I, what they're trying to sort of influenced yeah. by changing rates. Couldn't agree more. So let's unpack something there that we talked about briefly. Going back to what I want the audience to take away at this opening gesture of this short-term overnight interest rate. So when you hear that 24-hour rate, it's just a deposit that is paid back and yep. it's paid back at either this suggested Fed funds rate, which I believe today is, you know, anywhere from four, four and a half to, four, to four, seven, five. By the way, it can be lower than that, right? So a bank could go, oh, I'll do it for 2%. Like right. it can be lower than that. It doesn't have to be that it's just it's like suggested. a suggested retail price, there you right? Go. You it can just still can't sell be higher than that, right? right? But the reality is, from an audience perspective and from my perspective and yours, why on earth does the news want you to believe that a 30 year note rate is going to be impacted by a 24 hour rate of borrowing? That doesn't make any sense to me. And again, that goes back to someone being assigned a task to right. write about. Also, someone with an agenda to write about. Maybe maybe you're a mortgage lender writing this. Maybe you're an investor writing this. There could be an agenda involved in that. But the reality is those two things don't correlate, right? We have other things that correlate with it, the, the 10-year treasury, the CPI. Other things correlate with that. This technically does not, not even technically, it, it doesn't really correlate with it. Now, there's other indices that it impacts, and those could in turn could impact 30-year notes. But the ideology of borrowing money at 24 hours impacting something that's a 30-year risk breaks every financial barrier we know to man, which is short-term rate, you know, short ter- short-term risk or anything that's, that's low risk, low return, high risk high return. That doesn't make any sense when you look at a 24-hour rate. Yeah, and I think it goes back again to this being more of a signaling than truly a changing of the mechanics of how this works, right? I would agree with that. If the Fed's raising rates, they're typically doing that for a few reasons. Mm -hmm. They're doing that because they are trying to moderate uh, an economy that, that, you know, could get out of hand or is too hot, or in this case, they're trying to moderate inflation, right? So there's this underlying whatever they're trying to address with their policy. Right. That's that's really what's driving rates, but they're they're signaling by raising their rate. Uh, and so I think that that can get lost because, you know, you can look at the charts and sure, there are times when the Fed raises rates mm-hmm. and mortgage rates go up, yep. right? That's correlation, not causation. That doesn't mean that every time that happens, that's yep. true. Uh, I love that, those, correlation, not causation. Right, the underlying factors though- yep could be what's causing it, and it it just makes it appear that when the Fed raises rates, something like that happens. So in this case, though, it's all about inflation, yep. and the big report that they're looking at is the PCE report, right? The sure. Personal Consumption Expenditure Report. That's their favorite form of inflation. Yeah. Right. And the alternative is the CPI, which is probably the public's right. version. That's you and I's favorite form. Correct. Right? That's what we look at. Correct. So we got that reading uh, at the end of January, and you know this is news that is starting to become more expected is maybe the way to say it. Mm-hmm. What is happening is sort of in line with what people expected. So there's not a lot of volatility in the market. So it's almost like we got our bearings straight. We know what's coming. We're expecting it now. It's and and 
while it's reporting lower than the previous reading, we're just expecting it to be still inflated. And that's what we're getting. Well, and, and again, it's all relative to where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're no longer increasing the rate of inflation. We're still having inflation. That's an important thing that a lot of people miss. Right. Just because we had a 0.3 increase and that was less than the 0.5 or whatever. Right. That doesn't mean we didn't have inflation. That's the hard part. We still have inflation. Um, But when we look at this, uh, one of the things that stands out is that the core is still higher than the total. And so what I mean by that is when you take gas and energy and food out of the equation, the inflation actually is higher. And that may be sort of surprising to some, but what that is ultimately is energy costs coming down, mm-hmm. causing inflation to be lower. Right. And so that's why they look at it with and without those things, because they want to say, okay, core, we can probably control more than total. Uh, but to me, that's a red flag that's still stored out there. Yeah. I would love that you know inflation be high because of some volatile thing that can go away rather than the opposite, which is what we have of inflation without the volatile things is still higher than than with the volatile things. So Yeah, and this is why I love sitting down with the market distillery. You know, just because you guys take a lot of the data that's out there, you put it into trends, you funnel it into a distillery, let's call yep. it what it is, and you come out with exactly a, the narrative of what the market's telling us versus there's a lot of leading indicators out there or just companies in general that want to create a narrative, then they grab the data points they want and and to support that narrative. I really do like and appreciate when you come on the show how we actually go into the good, the bad, the ugly, the opportunity. Sure. what's there. So thank you for doing yeah, that. You. you know, and something that's interesting for me with, and I think this goes without, you know, it goes without being talked about a lot, is for the record, I think the Federal Reserve serves an important role in our financial institutions. For the record, I think they have way too much power now. Sure. They are doing what they were never intended to do. I'm not a Jerome Powell fan. I don't think he does a good job. I think we're going to look back from years from now, and he's going to be labeled as one of the worst, if not the worst, Federal Reserve chairman that's possibly out there. But I'll tell you why. Because he's not doing the things necessary to make the corrections because he's trying to please so many people. You know, we recently had a guest on the show, you know, Patrick Young, who talked about, you know, I lost sight of what I should be doing because I was so worried about pleasing other people. That's where Jerome Powell is right now. And if he was here, I'd tell him the same thing to his face. He's worried about pleasing too many people. And the thing is, sometimes doing the right thing is the hard thing. And if they would have made the rate hike quick and painful to begin with, it would have been a shorter run than what we're dealing with right now. And we wouldn't be dealing with some of the issues that are lingering and continue to linger because he put a Band-Aid on a broken leg. Well, and ultimately, it all started with the stimulus. Correct. Forget the rate hikes. We we didn't even need to get there if we just maybe moderated how much money we sure. pumped into the system, right? But the hard part, if we were to put ourselves in his shoes, is you're dealing with unknown at the time. And um, there's a lot of people that would argue, let the market figure it out. Yep. But politically, there's a ton of pressure of we are not going to let people – suffer when it's not their fault, which is what I think well, ultimately... And we're not going to let them suffer it, during the administration in which, you know, insert right. person I'm a part of, right? Right, right, There's right. no administration that wants to be labeled with that. Right. You know, so I, I get your point with that. Um, I also think because it's not an elected position, it comes with some other fallacies, right? Number one, sure. most of the people except two that sit on the Federal Reserve have no real-world experience. They are lifers inside the government, and they're lifers inside of the Federal Reserve. They've never had a day of real-world experience in their life. They have theology experience. 
that's a problem. Which is interesting because Jerome Powell actually has a background in the Main Street. So oh, he does. He, so he yeah. actually does. Yeah, you ready for this the one? rest of them. You know where his background was? Tell it was me. with an investment firm, which also happened to be part of the Enron debacle. Yeah. So yeah, he's got good experience in, in terms of being out there. These schemes are it's the best just, of them. Oh, exactly. It's not in the best of lights. So yeah. here it is. There's two people, him being one, the other one also being inside of that same firm, that same time frame. now at the Federal Reserve, right? There's not a lot of real world and what is out there is not real good, yeah. you know? And so again, I think we heard Barry say this, Barry Habib, and I'll give him credit. You're driving a car while looking at the rearview mirror. And, and so they're not really looking out the windshield. They're looking at lag, uh, lagging data that comes in. So I think that, that presents them a challenge. I also think when I go back to my statement that they're, they, they're way more powerful than they should be, the Federal Reserve was never designed to have commentary at a podium that impacts the stock market, right. that impacts the moving of bonds, if you may. That's not what they were designed for originally. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a second. But <laughs> what's happened is they've turned into essentially a warm buffet of the market movers. When they yep. speak, people listen, market moves, market tries to anticipate what they're saying. This kind of started back in really in the 90s when they started giving this, this kind of commentary that you had to decode uh, for the markets to understand. And then you had, you know, the, try to figure out predictability of what they were going to say. And that was even a bigger disaster. So here we are, they've got this empowerment that they really were never intended to have. Yep. And so now they're market movers. And we saw that yesterday. You know, the Federal Reserve comes out. Uh, there's notes from the, well, there's a briefing that happens after the Federal Open Market Committee comes. And the highlight of that is, hey, listen, we're staying the course. 2% is the inflationary target. Right. Unemployment has a target of X. We're going to do a rate hike of a quarter. We will do what's necessary at any at the means at which we have to get to the target rate of 2%. Yep. Market didn't like to hear that because what's that's telling the market is we're going to continue to raise rates because we're nowhere near 2% inflation. Sure. We're going to continue to hit you with this. And we're not recognizing that there's actually positive momentum that's already happening from the previous rate hikes. They didn't address that. And so markets didn't like it. We saw an immediate you know, downward spiral into uh, the, the, the mortgage-backed securities market as well as bonds, as well as the stock market and the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the Dow. Then 30 minutes later, Powell comes to the mic. And when he comes to the mic, it didn't take but, what, three minutes for him to address the things that are corrected in the market, right. that we're starting to see positive, you know, indicators that, un excuse me, that inflation is getting better. It's not where they want it to be, but it's getting better. And that they will evaluate that on a month-by-month -month basis and determine rate hikes based on that. That is a different commentary than what was read out 30 minutes earlier. So what happens? We literally have a 600-point reversal in the Dow within right. five minutes ending the day on a positive note, not much, but it's still a positive note. At one point, it was almost two point, 200 points high, and then it closed at like six you know, points up, but it still ended in the green and not the red, right? Relatively flat. And the mortgage-backed securities reciprocated that, right? We had a positive swing in the mortgage-backed securities, tremendous downward pressure on the 10-year treasury, which we've talked about. That is an indicator of uh, mortgage interest rates, long-term interest right. rates coming down. That's good. That means mortgage rates are coming down. And we're getting to a real pivotal level in that 10-year treasury to where you and I can almost do a victory lap because we're about to be at 5% or maybe even lower over the course of the next couple of weeks if this downward pressure continues. Sure. We're setting the stage for the next CPI reading to come out. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. 
and I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Let's back up and punt real quick. Let's talk briefly about this. The Federal Reserve was originally intended after the original run on banks happened. Yeah, like a lender of last resort. It was the lender of last resort. And, you know, and for our listeners, just a quick history lesson here. The Federal Reserve was created under the notion of the eight richest people in America after the bank run came together and said, how can we find a way to protect our money? That's right. originally where it started. There right. was no lender of last resort other than to protect my money. And at Jekyll Island, I think they checked, the story goes, they checked in under the under their, their first name. They were called the First Names Club. And they went up there and they said, we've got to come up with a fail-proof backup plan to support the banks. Because the run on a bank was, and I think we see it in It's a Wonderful Life, which is a Christmas movie, yep. where the gentleman goes in to get his money out of the bank. And the teller tells him, I don't have your money. He gets upset. The branch manager comes out and says, I can't give you your money until Charlie, our producer, pays his mortgage payment, right. then the money comes in, then I can give it to you. That was a real thing. Yep. You know, I never witnessed it. You didn't either, Charlie, but there's generations of people that understand what a bank run means. And to this day, kind of looms over that generation of, could it happen again? It won't, but could it? Who knows? But the reality is, um, that was a real thing. And so these groups of gentlemen got together and said, wait a minute, uh, let's meet in Jekyll Island. Let's find a way to protect our funds to where we don't lose our money. And then how can we come up with a backup plan to support these other banks to where this doesn't happen again? And the central banking system was created, the theology of it was created right there as a lender of last resort. So if my bank ran out of money, I don't have to wait on Charlie to make that mortgage payment to get you the money you want to take out your checking account. I can just borrow from a central bank. Correct. And also things were different. We We were on the gold standard at that time too, you know, the dollar was a portion to represent how much gold you actually own. It's very inconvenient. Yeah, versus versus uh, giving someone a brick or a coin. You know, you had the dollar system created. So anyhow, that's what it was originally designed for. I don't understand how it became what it is today, and it's a machine today. Yeah, it's a machine that is a market controller, market mover. That in the early '90s decided to adopt that term quantitative easing. Yeah. And when the quantitative, yeah, exactly. And when the quantitative easing started, that's when the muscle, the, the, the intimidation to the markets and also the control of a lot of different markets came under the empowerment of the federal reserve, which is what it was never intended to do. Sure. Well, I think a lot of it goes to back to politicians saying, correct. How can we solve a problem without you know, we don't have any tools. What tools do we have? Well, there's a printing press at the Fed. Maybe we can use that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the the Fed chair, he's appointed by the president, right? That's another anomaly. But yes, go ahead. He's appointed, he or she is appointed by the uh, the president. And if it's a midterm, if you may, there's always going, there, there's a high likelihood that there's always going to be a midterm appointment during a president's four-year yeah. term. Yeah, and I think the one other thing, just before I forget it, the Fed is named just like uh, Veterans United, where it seems (laughs) as though it's related to what it's talking about. But in fact, the Fed is a private organization. Mm. It is not a government body. It is not a government organization. Um, Just like Veterans United is not a government organization. It's not related to the military at all. all. It just is named something. Just want to follow that up. Right. Yeah, just a very 
quick, easy, classy name that gets people to believe something on their own assumptions. Yeah, and so the Fed is a private bank, and they've got the sweetest ability ever because they can just add add dollars to any bank account they want through their printing presses or now the digital world of typing mm-hmm. it in. And so, in general, though, uh, you know, I think back in the '90s, it looked around and said, "What can we do?" Well, uh, you know, let's start to just throw money at the problem because right. that's that's the easiest thing, and it's. Something that they've done for a long time that hasn't actually resulted in the negative consequences, at least that we feel like that we're seeing now with inflation on everything, you know, food and and normal things that we need. There was inflation, don't get me wrong, house prices, Mm -hmm. stock market, it all went into these financial assets. Uh, because the money was pumped into companies, not pumped into right. the general public. But So uh, it, it's interesting because I heard you say this earlier, and I don't mean to cut you off, but this is kind of the definition of a Ponzi scheme. Oh, because yeah. when you the, the definition of a Ponzi scheme is, and, and I think Charles Ponzi is the person that came up with it, hence the name, but I think the way it works is I'm going to take your money, okay, and then I'm going to use that for whatever I want to use it for, yep. and then I'm going to fake some sort of level of return or something or a need for it, and I'm going to try to go get more money from the next person and repeat over and over again and tell you about all this wonderful stuff that's going on with the money that I took from you. Yep. The Ponzi schemes fail when one thing stops, and that one thing is when you can't get any more money. Sure. Look that's when the that's yep. when the Ponzi scheme becomes exposed. Crypto, you know, I think uh, uh, South Florida. What was uh, Bernie Madoff? When when the money yep. stops coming in, that's when the Ponzi scheme is exposed. Yep. So your definition is well, they can just keep printing money. Sure. Right. And 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 you're right. Right. But what and do it's, we? It's what the do public we calling the bluff. Right. <laughs> yeah. As long yeah. as we believe that yeah. it's sound and that it's good. Now I'll say this though, as long as we're the reserve currency of the world, correct. We theoretically can do this a lot longer than any of us probably think we can. Absolutely. Um, as long the moment, as statement that's really important, and you're about to say it again. Go yeah, ahead. I was just going to say the moment that we're challenged as the reserve currency, which is happening. It is we happening look at, right in front. We of look us. at the the Chinese yuan. Yep. Uh, the Russian oil, all that stuff. Yes. They, there are plenty of other countries that would love for uh, a chance to dethrone the dollar as the national <laughs> reserve currency. Don't go down this rabbit hole because you know we'll do it. But I'm just saying, uh, you know, we got the, asked this question in an event the other day. If that happens, it is yep. a massively inflationary event because now all of a sudden, when you it, print money... It's a Venezuela You can control of it, right? It's a Venezuela inflationary kind of event that could happen here. Right. Now, again, far from happening. But you think about this. If you're constantly number two, and we talk about this all the time, I mean, and this is not my COVID theory, but I'll throw that out there as I'm saying this. If you're constantly number two, and you can't ever become number one, and you get sick and tired of being number two, you're going to do any measure necessary under your governing body, which is communist, by the way, to become number one. Sure. At At all necessary measurements. Sure. Let that sink in for a minute. So again, we saw what happened in late 19, early 2020. We saw, you know, what governments are capable of when they tell people, hey, listen, you can't have a child. We're going to cap your birth rate. Those are things that are happening. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, that happens, right? Sure. You want to protest? Oh, we're going to we're gonna do really bad things because you're protesting. You say something negative about the government? Uh, we're going to make sure you never get a higher education and anyone in your linear family can no longer get a higher education. Yep. These are things that happened over there. And then we're going to control the education if you get a chance to go. 
Number two, right? Constantly number two. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to number one. And I've already showed you I'll do whatever it takes in my own backyard to my own people to get to number one. So there is a – I'll go – rabbit hole here. I'm going to get away from it. But you know how I feel about that. Well, and and typically, you know, if we look at it objectively, number one can tend to abuse the power as well if they're in Fair there enough. long enough. Um, you know, I'm not a Patriots fan by any means, but <laughs> it is very easy to not like the Patriots if they're winning every single year, right? right? And I think the rest of the world sometimes feels a little bit like that. But, um, you know, if we get back to the Fed, here's here's ultimately what we have when we look forward. They are, you know, an analogy I really like is it's like they're in the shower trying to change the temperature of the water. Yeah, and there's analogy. a huge delay, right? We all know this, right? You turn it on hot, but it's still cold. <laughs> and so you turn it on hot a little bit further and it's still cold. Heat. And then all of a sudden it's way too hot. Yeah. Uh, that is exactly what the Fed has historically done with quantitative easing yep. and tightening. They will <laughs> raise rates and tighten. There's a lag to what they do in the market, so they continue to do that mm-hmm. until something breaks, as we've said many times. And then they have to turn it all the way back, and they probably overdo that as well, right? right. So so there's a seesaw that they're on, and right now we have a lot of sort of conflicting information, right? We have jobs where there is still a ton of openings. The The number of openings in the JOLTS report just continues to rise, saying we've got jobs and nobody's willing to fill them. Yeah, and the JOLTS report just means job opening report. Correct. How many open available jobs are. Correct. And then we've got uh, some, you know, GDP came out pretty strong at yep. the end of 2022. So, you know, we had two bad quarters and two good quarters in 22. And Lots of argument to be made that's based on fuel and fuel price and trade and so forth. Sure, and so on. but it's that's like, it. are we in a recession? Are we not? Correct. And And at the end of the day, uh, our inflation is still very, very high. And I, I think they're saying we are going to choose to try to attack the inflation because we still have strong jobs numbers. Uh, GDP is strong and we have room to do this. Yeah. But what we risk is... Yeah, the them the turning the wa- right. water too hot and yeah. it burning us and then us having to go right back down. Yeah. And and that's the sort of when everybody is looking at 2023, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. They're concerned about something breaking and the sort of consequences of that. Right. And to your point, I mean, it's it's the pure definition of we have a margin of error that's right. affordable right now. And they know that. That's why they're stating, they being the Fed are stating that. And also to your point, the hot versus the cold on the shower, that's the difference between a hard landing and a soft landing. Sure. That You just did a great job of really breaking down a hard landing versus soft landing that we hear in the news is, can they give us a really soft landing, like an airplane that touches and it's so smooth when it hits the tarmac, you go, wow, that's an amazing landing. Or is it going to be one of those hard ones where you bounce up and down right. or even worse, you know, you, you spin sideways, something bad happens, that's a hard landing, right? right. And, and so that's what we don't want. And so your shower analogy is a better version of that. I like it better, actually of the hot and the cold water. And that's what we're kind of experiencing. But there are some things that are also looming in the background that, uh, you know, we want to throw out there as well. You know, one of the things that I think we saw in 2008 was that when houses, and we hear this all the time, when home prices got above um, basically a market bearable rate, people quit buying. And then as people quit buying, you found that people had overpaid for homes. And then there was this over equity position. And then there's this, this, the seller or buyer owner conundrum. And it was, do I ditch my house, let it foreclose because the lender won't modify for me. Right. And in doing such, I sell the the palm trees or whatever trees, you know, uh, shrubbery. I sell the light fixtures. I, I get rid of whatever's valuable in the house to help my cash flow. And then I abandon the house. It is what it is. I'm writing it off. I'm permanently done. That's not going to happen in the housing market. But what 2008 taught us was that if people feel like they're buried in a product, they'll say, screw it. I'm done. I don't, I'm not going to do that. You can have it back, right? I, I've heard that term a lot in eight and nine. Oh, I just bank can have it back. Well, 
the 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 common denominator in that is two things. Number one, you were upside down in purchase price. You were upside down in what the, the lendability feature was. And then number two is the banks can have it back. So we look fast forward here to 2023. And one thing that we're seeing a trend on right now is the default rate on automobile loans yep. are going up. Yep. The default rate on auto loans are going up, which also carries some common denominators that we saw from 2008. And we always say history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it teaches us a lot. And what that taught us were those behavioral actions of society. And let's assume there's a new generation that enters the equation, right? Well, the punishment of a foreclosure on your credit report back in 08, 09, you know, it depends on what type of loan you get, but minimum, minimum, typically if you weren't a veteran was three years and it could go up to seven. Well, with a repo or an auto loan, it's a much different uh, credit, I guess you could say, term or punishment, if you may, it's actually a little lighter. Yeah. And and it's actually a little bit more beneficial versus a foreclosure by all means, right? Especially when you're looking at maybe buying another home down the road. And if you're a two-car family, you weren't a two-house family, right? If you were a two-car family, you might say, forget this, I'm going to go to one car because I can make that work if the economy gets tougher. But here's the common denominators. Have car prices been going up? Have they been over sticker price for quite some time when you go to the lot? Were people overpaying tens of thousands of dollars for automobiles? And were they financing that over equity position? The answer is yes. They were way over financing. Yep. And they were putting themselves in a position to where the LTV when they drove off the lot was probably like 130 plus. And they haven't had these cars for 18, 24 months. There's no way they've got down to an equitable position because what's happened is now during this duration, the chips are more plentiful. The demand is not as much. The car prices are starting to come back down to a normal MSRP, which is posing a question as we see this tightening happening and we see this maybe recession looming or that we're in. That starts to pose the question of, okay, what happens from what 2008 taught us with over-equity positions? What will the behavior show up? And we're seeing it starting to creep up to where we're actually talking about it right now. Yeah, there's there's some um, interesting facts coming out, right? So uh, there is a Mannheim used vehicle value index mm-hmm. that tracks how much used cars cost. Um, you know, new and used, we got to separate those. We'll look at just used. It is still dramatically higher than 2020. I mean, we're talking about almost double what it was in 2020. So there's a lot of room potentially for cars to come down in prices, except for inflation, right? We've also had a lot of inflation. So uh, people forget when inflation slows down or goes away, prices don't come down. Mm -hmm. They just stop going up as much. And so we have to remember that some of this may just be, look, there's a bunch more money in the system. And so things are just going to be at a, an elevated level. They're just not going to continue to rise so that every time, you know, you go to the grocery store, it's a new price tag on that thing. Right. Um, when you talk about the delinquency rate, the default rate on cars, you know, what that was measuring was the 60-day lates. So it's like how many people have missed two payments, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually the, the starting sign. That's a leading indicator. Correct. And so from Bloomberg, you know, we're up to just under 6% of the public is 60 days late on their car. Now, what was interesting when we looked at the chart that we have on this is, yeah, in 2008, that rate did jump up. It went, it almost doubled. It went from about two and a half to four and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big change, right? That's a lot of people, a lot of finances, a lot of credit, all that. Well, the other thing in 2008 was that we had extremely high gas prices, sure. right? They jumped, sure. SUVs became an issue. It's like, oh, I can't, can't afford to fill up this tank. 
we're starting to see gas prices creep back up again. Yeah, it's probably a sign of stress, right? Correct. When when payments start to get missed, it's a sign of financial stress. Because mm-hmm. if you didn't have that, you just made your payment. That's correct. But what was interesting when we actually go back is, first of all, there was a huge spike in delinquencies in 95, 96, which I just think back then, it's like, well, that was odd because I don't remember hearing about that or thinking about that. Mm-hmm. So this goes to the whole, we have data now that we didn't have back then. It's a little more readily available. But also... If you go back to 2016, 17, 18, 19, delinquency rates were about as much as they are now, right. which tells you maybe finances going into 19 and 20 weren't as good as we probably remember well, or thought. We know, that. we know that. It just, it was one of those things where I think, you know, again, we've entered this time warp where we don't remember. <laughs> um So I don't, I don't think that we're at a level that I would say is super extreme, but it is something that that's gone from again, delinquencies as low as maybe two and a quarter to now delinquencies just under five. That that tells me a lot of stress under has, six, entered right? The, just right, under six. has entered the system. Well, and I think this is compound. I, first of all, I think what we're doing is we're catching this on the forefront. Sure. There's something that's pointed out sure. to the forefront. And there could be a couple of explanations here. And and I know a lot, I mean, it's only 6%, but maybe there's some people that think like this. Do I make my house payment? Do I make my car payment? Oh, by the way, this is all data from the holiday season. Do I buy Christmas gifts? And we know that stuff happened because we saw the, I mean, we just did a whole podcast on credit card debt and we called it, by the way, we called it, we said by the time that podcast was over with, we would be at $950 billion, all time record high in credit card debt. The report came out last week. We were at $948.8 billion. Now, what I find interesting about that is it's the Santa Claus spin, right? We're spending through the holidays. So there could be an argument that maybe people are just saying, I'll get caught up but I'm going to do this over that. These are choices that are being made and behavioral economics that are being made. And I think it's something that we're on the leading edge bringing up may amount to nothing, but I think we're going to see a little bit more of this trend. Yeah. And and so the number of dollars charged on credit cards hit a new high. What was interesting though, is when the PCE came out, the savings rate actually jumped. Yep. Meaning, Meaning that when you compare how much money people spent versus earned, it actually got better. And that was, again, a, a surprise to a lot of people. I think if you'd ask us, hey, mm-hmm. place your bets, what do you think is going to happen? Sure. We just said savings rate price stays pretty low. because. Yep. But I think the question that we have to dig into a little bit is, okay, well, they may be saving more or, or modifying what they're spending their dollars on. And mm-hmm. so- Figuring that out is going to be something that we'll Agreed. have to look at. So yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. But you know, perspective on the savings rate went from two point four to three point sure. four, right? It's, so it did go up one percent versus thirty three point eight percent during COVID. Sure, you know, uh, it definitely is, uh, and it's down below the the average of six point one. So uh, it's still cut in half, if you may. Right. And so maybe that's a fluke, maybe it's not, but we'll see. We'll continue to, to measure that, but. Again, wrapping up, I think that's something to pay attention to. I think all of these things add pressure to what the Federal Reserve is looking at and what they're absolutely, quote-unquote, using as a driving force, no pun intended there. But I think the reality is they're too much of people pleasers. And I think that, to your point, they're they're appointed by the federal government, by the president of the United States. And I think there's a um, there's a picture because there's supposed to be separation between, you know, we'll say church and state in this case, but the Fed and and, and politicians. Right. But I believe there's a picture from uh, from the 70s before Volcker took over where um, Lyndon, it might have been in the 60s, where Lyndon Johnson, you know, he was a towering president of the United States in, in physical stature, yep. if you may where he's actually leaning over the wall, has his hand on the wall, and he's looking down at the time, the Federal Reserve Chairman. And it just kind of paints this image of 
of what we all think is going on, meaning that the administration does have some sort of power over the Federal Reserve in the form of influence. Sure. Because to your point, no one wants something like that to happen on their watch. Sure. And they don't want to be known as the administration that let inflation go to an all-time high or that raised interest rates to an all-time high to offset the inflation to counter it. We just want that smooth, soft landing. Sure. You want the water to be lukewarm comfortable, not blazing hot and nice cold. Yep. So, absolutely. Yeah. Alex, you know, we always appreciate having you on the show. Um, for our audience, if you're more interested in the market distillery, Alex, you want to tell them where to find you? Yeah. We're active on Instagram, love visuals. That's where it all goes. Uh, and then you can visit our website at themarketdistillery.com where we'll have market updates, research that we're working on. We recently just had an agreement with the University of Florida to partner with them Fantastic on research. Job. Congratulations. Um, so that is something that we're super excited about. And then we're looking forward to uh, just further expanding our offers to help, you know, especially real estate professionals, use data within their business, talk to their clients about the facts and the statistics and, and get resources to help. Because the one thing I know right now is there's more market confusion than we probably have ever had. And what you need is statistics and facts to help wade through just the opinion and the headlines that can cause all sorts of confusion. So. Yeah. I mean, what can you say? The news is not your friend. Right. It has an agenda or it has a lack of knowledge base because it's very overwhelmed. Yep. Get with the experts. Knowledge is power in our industry. Alex, thanks for bringing that knowledge to our show. We greatly appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing today, please share this podcast. Rate us on Apple or on Spotify with a five-star. Leave your comments for us. Specify the episode. And we'd really appreciate that feedback. Be real big for us. Alex, thanks for being on the show again today. Thank you, Q. I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah